Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. We're going to take just a second to tell you about our new project, Audio Dime Museum. So Audio Dime Museum is a recent project of ours, and it's an experimental, historical, dramatic storytelling podcast. I've had a lot of people talking about this, and it gets us really excited. One of our reviewers states, The episodes are a great mix of mystery, history, and fantastic storytelling. From Between Two Earbuds. Uh, Many people have described it as hypnotizing, leaving them with goosebumps and chills. So we get a little spooky. People are always interested to find out that the stories are true. We tell it in a dramatic way, but it is true. They're true stories. They're not just stories. (laughs) Exactly. So if you're interested in audio drama, interesting history. Goosebumps. Then check out Audio Dime Museum. We've cut together a little preview of some of our early episodes, and we'll be coming to the conclusion of Volume 1 soon, so I'm going to jump on board to find out what the curator has in store for you. In the Audio Dime Museum. Some people are brought here to our devilish little mystery. We keep lots of little mysteries. Everything here has a story. Every little thing. You have to contemplate the idea that you might die. That others might die by your hand. Because blue and gray men with guns and anger and commanders with presence and honor are marching toward one another and you're in the middle of it. They started by cheating at bridge and they ended by murdering a young boy named Bobby Franks because they believed they could get away with it. And you keep seeing that woman. No, women. It must be two. Even though they say the same thing. You made me do this. You do see the ship now. With scraps of fabric on deck. Giving to the breeze. And with a few more strokes of the oars. You realize they are scraps. Not of canvas. could swear you hear his voice, stern and convicted. Swear you feel a presence. So when I was little, a group of kids in my neighborhood decided that they were going to spend the night inside a funhouse. So after the fair closed, they broke inside and, you know, it's full of all the usual thrills and chills and things designed to terrify the children who go inside. And the maze makes it difficult for the kids to get around. And eventually, among all the surprises, they come across a hanging corpse. And then a prankster in the group shoves one of his friends to scare him and they accidentally bump into the hanging man knocking its hand off. The kids pick the hand off the floor and shake it at each other jokingly, but soon they realize the hand is very old and very real. The hanging man isn't a prop, but an actual dead body. So all the kids ran in terror out of the house of horrors and ran home. Okay, so I heard so we're on the bus from my dad to go to Dallas. One time, when I was little, uh, my dad a, ran it. When I was little, my dad church, a man came out of the Hi, and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. And before we get into the story of this week, we do want to take a mention of our listener contest and the limericks that it hath wrought. Right, we did announce last week that we are fast approaching our 25th episode. It's exciting. Half a year of doing this. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, we want to thank all of our listeners, of course, and want to encourage you to reach out to us somehow, whether it be on email, Twitter, or through reviews, and we've got a special... Pause Go Read It Prize. Pause Go Read It Prize is from the Pause Go Read It store. Throughout the episodes we've previously recorded, we've come across books 
that we highly recommend, and we tell our listeners that they should pause our show and go read those books and then come back. Some of you might be commuting. They make audiobooks. Still, pause, go read it. You can access any of those titles through our little Amazon store that's on our website. If you reach out to us and we have your name to announce on the show on the 25th episode, we will get in contact with you and send you a pause, go read it prize of your choice. We've had some great entrants so far. Yes, among them uh, is one review from A7 Exposé. We want to thank you for that. And Brian Chapman wrote us a great limerick about Dr. Hazard that you can read on our Twitter feed. Thank you so much. So back to the story at hand. Is that a pun? Maybe. (laughs) So we are looking at the idea of accidentally finding a mummy. A mummy. A mummy, not a mommy, a mummy. (laughs) So this is a classic urban legend that has been around for a long time. Several different incarnations with your sweetheart at the fair. Do you want to go to the fair with me? Well, we are in Texas. I feel like there's probably a fair right now. We just missed the rodeo. Going through the fun house, holding each other tightly, and knock against a mummy. But that mummy is no mummy. Well, it is a mummy, but it's not a dummy mummy. Right. It's a mummy mummy. It's not a mannequin or it's not a prop. It's a real preserved human corpse. Bum, bum, bum. So what we're saying is this, just to start off the show, this is not just a story. It's not just a story, folks. The real life incident that most closely resembles this tale of terror at the fair um, involves an individual by the name of Elmer McCurdy. That's a great name. He was not a great bad guy, but he wanted to be a bad guy, but he was pretty bad at being a bad guy. So like one of his earlier exploits um, involved the use of a little nitro to blow open a safe on a train. So he was like a bad guy in a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah, well, he kind of was. He used too much nitro. And the explosion actually liquefied the silver that was in the safe. Failure number one. Yes. And then failure number two, at least, was in 1911. He was part of a robbery that resulted in the theft of $46 and two bottles of whiskey. That's big money. It's big stuff, right? And this is not one of those things like, oh, 1911, that was a lot of money. No, it's not. It's not a lot of money. So this, of course, resulted in a shootout with police. As all good Western stories do. All good Western stories have a little more theft than $46 and two bottles of whiskey. Right, and he was like a Western outlaw in Oklahoma. Yeah, at the very end of the wild, wild west, I guess. I, I really do think the Wiley Coyote comparison is very appropriate. So he's in the shootout with police, he's shot, and he doesn't make it. So they bring him back to the Undertaker in town. The Undertaker embalms him with lots and lots of arsenic. Arsenic's lethal. Oh, wait. He's dead. Yeah, Yeah. good good call. (laughs) Yeah. So after he's pumped full of arsenic, the Undertaker waits around for about six months to see if anyone's going to show up to claim poor Elmer. And does anybody? Of course not. So is he buried on Boot Hill? Wouldn't that be fitting? It would be a very long journey, but no, he's not. He'd be like the runt of the litter. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) He would get picked on by all the other outlaw ghosts. He's not. They save him that humiliation and choose another one. The undertaker decides that the thing to do with Elmer would be to stand him in a corner of his shop. Just standing there? Well, yeah, he didn't want him too close to the front because he wanted to charge people admission to go look at him. Oh, so he turned this into a money-making Oh, yes, he did. And do you know what the charge was to see Elmer, the outlaw? Two coins to place over his eyes. Almost. It was a nickel in his mouth. Oh, okay. Like you'd have to physically put it there? Yes. I don't know about that. I don't either. I'd be afraid that it would, like, snap my finger off. That would be so... Oh, that'd be such a great prank. But anyway, (laughs) next Halloween... So the Undertaker had him on display at his funeral home as like a mini little museum, like dime museum. Nickel museum. Okay. I guess you're only getting one thing. One mummy. For the price of a nickel, you could see a mummy. It was also displayed under a banner that said the bandit who wouldn't give up. That's a fitting title. I think it's one of the nicest epitaphs you could come up with for him, honestly. Five years after Elmer's death, two men show up. And they pretend to be outraged, 
that he's got their relative on display. Oh, good. His family showed up. Right, right. You would think. And they're, they're mad and they want to give him a proper burial and they can't believe that he has all these nickels in his mouth. Okay, I'd be mad too. Well, the thing about this seemingly merciful act is that these are, in fact, James and Charles Patterson and they're carnies. They're carnies. Well, they're head carnies. Okay. They're the boss carnies. Don't mess with those guys. No. Never mess with a boss carny, words of wisdom. So they're boss carnies, and they decide that Elmer is going to be featured in their sideshow. And so he gets to travel the country and be a star. Even though he's dead. And full of arsenic and nickels. He goes around with them for a few years, and then he's sold to a man named Sonny, who has a museum of crime. He's a retired police officer. And so... He becomes part of that exhibit for a little while. And then for a brief time, he's exhibited in the lobby of a movie theater. Why? I see in the lobby of a movie theater. Well, I can't really answer the why, but I can tell you what for. (laughs) Okay. Uh, He was there to promote, which makes it sound like he was like actively signing autographs, which he wasn't. He was there to promote a movie called Narcotic. Narcotic. It sounds like Reefer Madness. Yes, I think it's almost exactly that. But above the casket, they changed his billing moniker, I guess, and he was now labeled Body of a Dope Fiend. Because his skin was starting to wrinkle and age. It had been years since he died. Couldn't have been looking... Spry. Yeah. (laughs) So after his other brief touch of fame in a movie lobby where did he go next well he he did a little touring around he was sold to a wax museum eventually and they displayed him as a mummy mannequin wait did they know he was yeah okay i kind of feel like yeah so they knew he was preserved body yeah but they thought meh why not and so they put him in there for a while. He was displayed as like 10,000-year-old man there, which he wasn't, but I'm sure he was beginning to look like it. A little while longer, like I think in 1971, they were like, you know, he just doesn't really look good enough to be an exhibit, but we have him, so let's just paint him and hang him from a noose in the funhouse. What a great ending to the outlaw that wouldn't quit. Oh, well, he's not done yet. Oh, good. <laughs> so in a, another bitter ironic twist the crew of the six million dollar man is going to film in the funhouse where elmer is displayed and i find that ironic because it's the six million dollar man discovering the 46 dollar man but they are working around and kind of reorganizing things so they can get in there to shoot and one of the crew members reaches up and kind of grabs elmer's arm to swing him out of the way and it breaks And when it breaks, he's like, oh, no, I'm going to have to replace this prop. And then he's like, oh, no, dummy mummies don't have bones. He found the bones of the mummy. Yeah. Of Elmer. Of Elmer in his arm. (laughs) So that's why I said your hand thing was a pun. Thanks. Yeah. Long punchline there, guys. So they called the medical examiner. They found a body in this fun house. And when the medical examiner brought them back to their medical examination headquarters, they uh, discovered a ticket stub from the crime museum and a penny from 1924 in his shoes. Well, that was like some CSI. So. I know. But then they just kind of asked the guy that owned the fun house, and he's like, yeah, that's Elmer McCurdy. Uh, we should probably give this back to, you know, Oklahoma. So they do. So he makes it back to Guthrie, Oklahoma in 1976, and he's buried there. And they actually poured two feet of concrete over his grave to make sure that he didn't do any more tour dates. So he finally quit. I think 16- he was forced into retirement, yeah. actually. He would have kept going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hundreds of years. till he really was the 10,000-year-old man. But yeah, so he is in Guthrie, Oklahoma. And you can go visit his grave if you like. There's a big headstone. We keep kind of alternating labeling him like a preserved body or a mummy and those are almost alternating terms so what do you think of when you think of a mummy king tut right i think that's what everyone thinks of but there's more than just the egyptian mummies well yeah there are lots and lots of types of mummies so the term mummy actually is rooted in egypt it comes from a persian word mamiya which was their word for bitumen which is a black, tarry substance they thought was how they made mummies. They thought they coated them in this. I thought Mamiya was that ABBA thing. No. Sorry. 
So in essence, a mummy is a preserved dead body. And there are different types of mummies. Like you're talking about in Egypt, they have your artificial mummies. Uh-huh. And there are more naturally made mummies. So the first artificial mummy were 7,000 years ago by the Chicano people in South America along around Chile. They tried to make their bodies look lifelike. They would remove the skin and the insides. They would take the bones and tie them together with sticks and build a body of white mud. And then they'd place the dry skin back on the body, especially the face, and then paint it black or red. That's people taxidermy. This is all kind of people taxidermy. No, that's like what taxidermists do. They remove the skin and put in artificial stuff and they put it back over. Like, that's that's it. And they make fake fish. Did you know that? The fish aren't real. What do you mean? I mean, the fish aren't real. They just carve replicas of the fish. I did not know that. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. <laughs> huh. You learn something new every day. In South America, mummies were also made in Peru. They were put in a sitting position and wrapped to make kind of a mummy bundle and preserved by the dry, cold environment. And the mummies, a mummy bundle? A mummy bundle. And the mummies of Incan emperors were paraded through the streets of Cusco. Like before they were put in the hills or would they like go get them and round them up for parties? I think they go get them. Okay. Yeah. That sounds legit. There's a really famous example of a really beautiful female mummy that they found from this school of mummying. It's great they found that example because guess what happened when the Spaniards came? Oh, I can only imagine. I assume that it has something to do with like pillaging and plundering and possibly like trying to convert the mummies to Catholicism. Right, so when the mummies wouldn't convert, they destroyed them. Well, yeah, that's pretty much their MO. And in four years, they destroyed 1,365 mummies. That makes my heart hurt. It's an extremely specific number. (laughs) It really is. Now that you mention it, that's highly suspect. But it's what was in the book. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) And there's another great example of a man-made mummy in Asia. And this is Lady Cheng in China. Okay, that's a scary mummy. She looks like a cyclops. She's really old, so I give her props for that. Like, right, she's 2,100 years old. She looks really great for 2,100 years she's old. She's older than Jesus. Yes, she is, but like, there's something about the way her skin like puckered on her face, like around her eye sockets. Like, Really, every time I look at it, I'm like, that's cyclops. Like, I thought it, the first time I saw it, I thought it was like a medical specimen that had been preserved or something. But if you look away from her face, you see that she really is very well preserved. So she was placed in a coffin that was sealed with a liquid containing mercury and then placed in two other airtight containers. And then she was buried under charcoal and clay. Which is also airtight, right? Like, that would create a barrier for moisture and everything else as well. Right, the charcoal would absorb the moisture, and the clay would be another barrier for air. So there would be really no way for bacteria to grow. That's awesome. That's very legit. Right, so when they opened her casket... Who was she, do you know? She was in the royal family. This is not something that they're doing for any old body. No, 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 no. Once they opened her, I mean, this is two millennia later... Her tissue was still elastic. Her joints were movable. And they found that she was buried with spirit goods, miniatures of possessions, including an entourage of servants, and exquisite lacquerware. And no one knows the complete preservation that was done, except for what we discussed. And then, of course, we come to Egypt. Okay, we can't do all of Egypt. We're not going to do all of Egypt. I mean, like, Boris Karloff alone is going to take us, like, an hour to talk about we can't talk about egypt let's just skip egypt no let's just talk about how they made them because it's interesting okay so the first mummies were natural mummies they Uh were buried in the sand around 3500 bce okay so just bury them in sand and they'll be cool yeah but then just 100 years later they started making artificial mummies what do you think inspired that change i'm not sure i mean like it's interesting you have to wonder if they were like just sitting around one day and they're like i could do better So it took 70 days to make a mummy, 15 days to cleanse the body. They Mm -hmm. were put in the place of purification tent and then taken to the house of beauty where they removed. (laughs) Wait, what? I'm sorry. Spa day. So on the spa day, they removed the brain. Ooh. Guess what they did with the brain? They pulled it out of the nose. Yeah, but what did they do with it after? 
They threw it away. They just tossed it. <laughs> they were like, this shit is not important. If we can pull it out through the nose, it's not important. They, they didn't feel it was relevant at all. Uh, but they did leave the heart because they thought that it was the center of intelligence. That's interesting. I wonder why. Like, they had to see people who got hit in the head and then weren't right again, right? I just, I wonder if it, that has any relation to how we use the symbolism of a heart now. I'm sure it does. There's always been, like, the head and heart problem. You know, like, think with your head, think with your heart. They've always kind of been at odds. But like I said, you have to wonder. Like, you know there were people who got knocked in the head and then just started acting weird. What did they think had happened? Like, how did they not put that together? Gods were angry or something. Okay, fine. Coke bottles. So they then spent 40 days drying the body out. They would cut a slit in the side and place salt, rags, straw, drying grass, sawdust, and then cover the body in a layer of salt. You know, we discussed the brain being removed. They also removed other organs, and those were dried out as well. So during the drying process, the organs are in or out? They did take certain organs out and place them in canopic jars. Those are the jars that have different little figures. Right, and they're representations of certain gods. And so, like, the lungs were placed in the canopic jar with Hapi, the baboon god. The stomach was placed in the jar with the jackal, representing Dumatev. The liver placed in the jar with a human head, representing Imseti, and etc., etc. The hole in the side was then covered with a wax seal with the eye of Horus. It was kind of an evil eye kind of thing. Yeah. It had the power to see evil and stop it from entering the body. And so with all that, that's during the 15 days where they wrapped it. And they would do layers of linen strips, just like you would think of a mummy in Mm -hmm. Halloween time. But then they would wrap it in a linen sheet and then bind it with linen strips. And between these layers, they'd place different protective amulets. So very heavy on the symbolism. Really wanted that thing to not be gotten. And it worked really well. I mean, if you've seen Ramses, holy moly. Right, it looks amazing. For being... Millennia old. Yeah. And then we start to get into more of a modern era of preserving bodies and creating what could be called a mummy. Can you think of any great examples of famous people that have been recently mummified? Well, Walt Disney was cryogenically frozen. I think that's an urban legend. (laughs) Well, Abe Lincoln was preserved for his tour. Tour to I'm Dead. He has a famous death mask. Mm-hmm. Oh, the death mask is so awesome. We'll talk about that one day. And what about Lennon? John? Nope. Vladimir? Yes. Okay, yeah, that one's creepy. Google it. He is preserved by, like, a secret Soviet method of preservation. In his body, the organs have been removed, and there's a humidifier in his body to give him, like, a dewy complexion. That's disturbing. Oh, and he's got his fist clenched, too, because, you know, Russia. <laughs> Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, Ava Perón, uh, was also remarkably well-preserved and eventually covered in wax. And there's another great example of a little girl called Sleeping Beauty. Rosalia Lombardi. She's in Palermo, Italy. She's a little two-year-old girl. Her father was very grief-stricken when she died, and he wanted her to be preserved as best she could be. And so an embalmer undertook the process but in total secrecy he wouldn't tell anyone what his methods were after his death people immediately went and found his journals and found that she'd been embalmed with formalin zinc salts salicylic acid alcohol and glycerin she died in the 1920s and she is i mean she looks like a sleeping child it's creepy i'll definitely post a picture of that on our twitter feed look out for that but she has like a bow in her hair and her hair's like all curly and pretty because she's in the the capuchin catacombs in palermo there are lots of fluctuations in, in temperature and pressure and so when these things occur her skin's still flexible and so things happen like her eyes blink or she might like groan that is disturbing it's really creepy so yeah that's that's maybe the creepiest mummy ever in my opinion We've been making artificial mummies for millennia. Forever. But the other type of preserved body mummy is a natural mummy. It's natural. It's all natural, baby. Organic mummies? These are all organic, all natural. No GMOs. No preservatives like the other guys. 
Keeping it real. These are the Ben and Jerry's of mummies. And so when I think of this, the first one I think of is the Iceman. About the Iceman. Otzi. I don't want to talk too much about him because he's a really interesting, detailed story. But he was a he was discovered very recently in 1991. And he's a Stone Age man, mm-hmm. and he was probably a hunter of some sort. And he was injured by a flint arrowhead. That's called being shot. Yeah. That's not injured by. Right. And they can tell that he tried to pull the arrow out and got the shaft out, but left the head of the arrow. So he's like a hard ass Stone Age hunter man, Oatsy. Exactly. Brad Pitt has an Oatsy tattoo. And also, when you say Iceman, all I can think about is Val Kilmer. Also, moving on, bog bodies, my favorite. So bog bodies are naturally preserved by falling into bogs. These bodies are usually found when people were cutting peat out of the bogs to use for fuel. They're mainly found in northern Europe. Most commonly asserted that they fell into these bogs after their death. And these bogs are great to preserve bodies because they don't allow much bacteria to grow because there's very little oxygen down there. And I love that you say that they just fell into these peat bogs. If one falls places with nooses around their neck, that's a totally legit read on it. So what do you mean? Uh, well, there's the Tolan man. He was found in Denmark in the 1950s. And when they found him, they found a noose around his neck. So he did not accidentally fall in. He was kindly asked to jump into the bog. <laughs> his preservation is amazing. I mean, it looks like a stone sculpture. You can even see his beard, the little whiskers he has on his head. When I was a kid, I had a book on mummies because, of course, he was on the cover. And for the longest time, I thought it was a bronze sculpture, even though it was on the cover of a book about mummies. I just assumed they didn't want to upset people by putting dead people's faces on the cover. Another one is the Windeby girl. And she died 1900 years ago in Germany. And she was drowned wearing a blindfold and had heavy rocks and branches put on top of her body so that it would sink. So we can kind of assume that the bogs were the places where they threw people that they executed. Oh, right. I mean, they have the Lindau man, and he was found in northwest England in 1984. He died around 1900 years ago, again. He died from eating poisonous mistletoe, was hit on the head, and a cord was tight around his neck. Oh, they really killed him. And his throat was cut. Ooh, really killed him. Some people even propose that he was a sacrifice. That's very interesting. But you can see him on display at the British Museum in London. As we're talking about these bodies found in Northern Europe, I have to mention that there were blonde mummies found in China wearing European wool that predate any European exploration into China. Any known exploration. Right, obviously. And Maybe it was the Aryans. I was, yes, that's what I was going to say. It was totally the Aryans. For sure. There you go, Himmler. No charge. (laughs) There have been some naturally preserved mummies not related to Europe, such as in America. Like this America? Uh, yeah. One called the Spirit Cave Man was found in Nevada in the 1940s. He was wearing an animal skin cloak and moccasins and wrapped in mats of tough grass. And since he was in this cave, he was well preserved in this arid environment. So do they think he was put there in order to become a mummy? Or do they think that that's just where he died? And No, they think that he was, in a way, buried there. He was put there after death because of him being wrapped in the mess. Okay, so this is not like something you would do to yourself. Because who would mummify themselves? Just the Buddhist monks who mummify themselves. Oh, that too. We've talked about man-made artificial mummies. And we've talked about natural mummies that are products of their environment. And so I guess that's it. Eh. What are you eyeing? Eh. Well, they're, they're the miraculous mummies. What do you mean miraculous mummies? I mean the God-made mummies. Like in Egypt? No. Why aren't your bells ringing, you stupid Catholic? <laughs> Recovering Catholic. I know, honey. We're working on it. Does the word incorruptible mean anything to you? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> Would you like to use your expensive Catholic education and explain the concept of incorruptibility to our fair listeners? Why do I always have to explain the religious stuff? Because your mama and your daddy sent you to Catholic school and I want them to know they didn't waste their money. So, to be incorruptible, this word is most often associated with saints. And so a saint is a holy person Mm -hmm. in the Catholic Church. In order to become a saint, you must 
One. Lead a holy and pure life and all that good stuff. So be pious. Two. After death, be associated with two miracles. Okay. And so these are your little check boxes. Once you have that, of course, then you can be reviewed by the various committees of the Vatican to see if you get to be a saint. So if you can make miracles happen, you might get to be part of some kind of bureaucratic review. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Woo! Okay, so saints. So whenever you are up for sainthood in the draft and they want to you know, put you through the combine... And make sure that you are who you are, and so they exhume the body. Wait, why? Why would they think, we need to make sure this guy's like really dead, or? Well, they did a lot of things. They wanted to make sure that that body was the saint's body. Okay. Because they wanted to take pieces of it. Oh, obviously. What? You know, relics. Relics are things like holy grails and arcs of the covenant, Jacob. I know you know what relics are, because you like this weird shit. <laughs> I can't believe that this is a major world religion. Every time I read about Catholicism, I'm like, oh my God, it's so crazy. They would exhume these bodies, and whenever they exhume the bodies, besides wanting to take pieces for relics, they would also look for incorruptibility. And so back in the day, this was defined by Pope Benedict XIV. Okay. In 1734, his criteria was that the bodies had not undergone any sort of preservation process, but it retained a lifelike color, freshness, and flexibility. And this is a miracle? At the time, it was considered a miracle. So you really just had to do one miracle and not rot and you could be a saint? Well, you know, the Pope can like just go, ah, it's fine. He's only got one miracle. He could be a saint. Pope's discretion. Yeah. <sighs> Another thing that he mentions... Is the odor of sanctity. Sanctity smells. Yeah, it smells good. It smells kind of flowery. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you smell flowery? Because I'm not a saintly person. (laughs) I actually did a little research into why they associated the body not rotting with being awesome. (laughs) Okay. So they believed that bodies rotted. Because they were in purgatory. And it was evidence of the trials that the soul was going through in purgatory in order to make its way to heaven. If a saint or a pious person, because they wouldn't be a saint yet, didn't decompose, they believed that they spent no time in purgatory and went straight to heaven. So they were, like, totally perfect and had no sins to work off. Right, it was a sign of purity. Mm Mm-hmm, absolutely. What do they do with the other bodies? Is it Catholic corpse potty room time sure why not so i love doing this show because every week i find out some absolutely mind-boggling unbelievable thing that happened last week it was hitler cows this week it's the putridarium that's a fancy latin name oh it means corpse toilets that's what i'm going to tell our listeners that it means so the putridarium was this little room in the catacombs where wealthy parishioners and clergy would be taken after death And they had these little chairs fixed into the wall. And the little chairs had a little hole in the middle. Like one might, say, build in an outhouse. On these little chairs and the little holes in the middle, they would take their dearly departed and they would pose them seated on the chairs. And they would put a strainer under the body. What was the strainer used for? Well, when the goo fell in the hole. The goo. From the decomposition. Oh, They wanted to make sure that no bone fragments fell in. What did they do with the bones? Well, after the body had decomposed completely, usually took a year or two. It was open air, underground. So they would have to change the clothes on the corpse, obviously, a few times. And they would go and hold a few masses and family would come and visit and things over the course of the year. Because it's a really important point of Catholicism to pray for people in purgatory. So families would visit. It's also probably a pretty cathartic thing, like to accept the death of a loved one, like to see them not even looking like your loved one anymore. I don't know. It wouldn't do it for me, but maybe y'all are morbid. Maybe it would work for you. Well, you figured out my plans for you. I don't want to go to a putridarium. You better hope I die first. I do. (laughs) So they collected the bones. Yes. What are you going to do with a bunch of bones? Well, after they were white and pure, 
you Catholics and your symbolism. But anyway, after the bones were made white and pure and the rot of the flesh was over, they would take the bones and they would put them in an ossuary. And an ossuary is? A place where they put bones. Kind of artistically. (laughs) Yeah. They would make like art sculptures out of skulls or chandeliers or big coats of arms made out of thigh bones and things. They would assemble them in a visually pleasing manner. And some of the real legit like high up there parishioners, I'm guessing moneyed parishioners, would actually get to be placed in the churches and like in little chapels and things. That's interesting. You know, this is not something that was part of my Catholic education. The idea of incorruptibility is a Catholic idea, but it's not necessarily a doctrine. So it no longer is considered a miracle. Uh Uh-huh. It cannot count as one of your miracles for saintdom. Okay. Is it good for extra credit? Yes. Okay. (laughs) So it is considered a positive sign. I think that's a quote. (laughs) But it's not considered a miracle like it used to be because there are so many ways that one could fake it. Did anyone fake it? So the answer is they did. They totally did. When the crew from... Pisa, which has an incredible anatomy museum, which I suggest you Google. It's haunting and creepy. But they were doing some research on some medieval female saints, and they found that they had been, like, had organs removed and had, like, flowers put in their bodies and, like, had been treated with things and stuff. And they had been formally thought to be incorruptible. So there were some corrupt nuns and things tending to these saints' bodies. So corrupt, incorruptible saints. Yes. In all of my... You know, education that we talk about way too much. We did not talk about this. You know, it might have been mentioned if we were talking about a certain saint or something, but not really a big topic. So I could not give you a big list of incorruptible saints. But you know what? There's no official list of incorrupt saints. That's interesting because I feel like the Catholic Church has official list of everything. I think this is kind of so fringe. They don't, oh, fringe Catholic? Oh they God. don't they don't discredit it. Because it's like that's nice. They but, didn't rot. Yeah, but they don't want to, you know, say, oh yeah, incorruptibility. That's fun. No, I feel like this is the thing your crazy Catholic aunt tells you at Easter one year, and you're like, there's no way that's real. And then you go look, and you're like, okay, it's a thing. But it's not something that's going to be officially peddled in. Are you talking about my auntie? I am talking about your auntie. So I don't have like an official list of anything, but I do have like a incorruptible saints greatest hits list for you. It's like a now mix. Yes. One of my favorites that I found is I was compulsively Googling incorrupt saints because it is the creepiest, weirdest thing and I can't believe it exists. Literally, I cannot believe we got this up on time. I found out there's an incorrupt boob. I'm sorry. But we'll come back to the incorrupt boob. Let's start with St. Catherine of Bologna. She died in 1463. There were cures at her gravesite after her death. And they were like, we should probably dig her up and make sure everything's okay. I don't know exactly how that process worked. But they exhumed her after 18 days. And when they did, she was perfect. 18 days later. And she smelled like flowers. Even the villagers in the countryside could smell The flower smell from the corpse, because obviously. And then one nun who was there noticed there was a little flap of skin hanging off her foot. And so what do you do when you see a flap of skin hanging off a corpse? I don't. She reached down and pulled it off. Of course. And the corpse bled like it was still alive, Jacob. Must be a miracle. It must. If it's bleeding, it must be a miracle. It was declared a miracle because it was a miracle at the time. And so they get St. Catherine all gussied up, and they take her, and they put her on an altar at a church. And she's wearing a fancy habit. It said that it was a very expensive habit that was provided for her, which is not something she would have worn in life. But she is seated behind the altar, but she's, like, sitting up there in a chair in a throne with lots of gold. She's kind of creepy looking now. Her skin is, like, totally black and not in a racist way, like in a that-doesn't-look-human way. And it's turned that color from all the incense and lamps that they have burning in her crystal shrine. So there is a smoked, preserved nun just sitting in the church. Yep. Wonderful. In a habit. Anymore? <laughs> oh, that is the tip of the incorruptible iceberg. Was that the one the Titanic hit? 
So there's also St. Paula Fazanetti. She was found to be incorrupt 24 years after her death. And so the nuns got really excited and they're like, oh, she's incorrupt. This is wonderful. She shall be a saint and we will put her in a glass coffin. But first, we should probably make sure that, you know, now that she's been exposed to this air, that her body doesn't start to decay now that we brought her back into our world. And so they call in a specialist and they say, give her a carbolic acid bath. Right. And that still counts as incorruptible because they found her in an incorruptible state after she was buried. Right. So they weren't like negating her status as incorrupt. After the nun had her acid bath, just chew on that for a minute, her skin kind of got wonky. So she looks like very corpsey and like her skin's really gross, but you know, they still got her on display in a glass casket. So they do any more carbolic acid treatments? Oh, yeah. So there was this one priest who was not terribly interesting. He was very into the Eucharist, apparently. And his name was St. Pierre Julien Hermant. When they found him, he too was pristine and beautiful and lovely. And so they called in the carbolic acid guy. Apparently there was no memo that went out after St. Paula's incident. And the carbolic acid guy comes and he gives the priest his acid bath. And after that... Didn't go so well? Didn't go so well. I bet I know what they did. Okay. They displayed a skeleton in no. <laughs> Oh, honey. First of all, these are Catholics. Second of all, they're French Catholics. They have a flair for art and drama. Are you saying something about French Catholics? I'm saying I love them dearly and y'all are some morbid, morbid folk. After his acid bath, he was not fit for public display. They were like, this is just a mess. We cannot. So they commissioned a wax effigy. That seems nice. But they put all of the bones inside of it. Okay, interesting. <laughs> so now the wax effigy is on display in a coffin, still dead, which to me, like, if you're going to do it, like, he should be, like, playing cards or something. I don't know. Like, he, This wha- is why you aren't in charge. <laughs> he should be, like, doing a thing. Like, if you're going to make him and you can make him do whatever you want... Why would you make him still look dead? Anyway, so he's looking dead, but he's not quite looking dead because they made his eyes open. So he's laying there dead with his eyes open in a glass casket in a church in France. So one thing I do remember about all of this is that it's not always the whole body that's incorrupt. That's a common misconception. Body parts count. One of my favorite relic body part incorrupt stories is St. Anthony, you know. St. Anthony. Yeah, you pray to him if you lose something. Right. So St. Anthony of Padua, he died in 1231 when they exhumed him for Catholic reasons. They found that he was just bones, which is a total bummer. Except? Except for his tongue. Just his tongue. Just his tongue was incorrupt. So if you find an incorrupt tongue, what do you do with it? Put it on display. Yeah, I think you were joking. But yeah, that's totally what you do. The tongue was detached and put on display on a big gold board. And it's tied to the board with a a red cord in a reliquary. So that's a good one. Well, and so it's interesting that his tongue was preserved because he was known as a great writer and speaker. You know, he had these writings of his sermons and he was so popular and seen as such a a great Catholic priest that he was canonized just a year later after. Oh, his wow. Death. That's, that's the fast track. He was even given the title Dr. Evangelicus. Like a learned man, doctor. Right. That's really cool. You hear like silver tongued or whatever. He had an incorrupt tongue. So <laughs> that's like the best possible version of that. So one I do know about is St. Vincent de Paul. Oh, like the thrift store. Right. And so he was a priest and he had actually really interesting life. But he was someone that took care of the poor, and that's why all these stores and places are named after him. But he was exhumed in 1712, 53 years after his death. And he did show some decay at that time. And then he was exhumed again in 1737 for beatification. And he was very decomposed because there had been an underground flood. But they found that his heart was incorrupt. Well, that's kind of nice. It's kind of a nice story, right? So his heart is in a reliquary in the chapel of the mother house of the Daughters of Charity in Paris. And the bones are in a wax figure, glass reliquary, in the chapel of the headquarters of the Vincentian Fathers in Paris. His is not as creepy as Julian's. 
my personal favorite that I've found through all of my research here that I'm just going to have to talk about or I might die is St. Agatha. I think we've mentioned her before. Yeah, we talked about her on the Don't Turn on the Light episode. She was a virgin martyr who would not yield to the Roman soldiers who were making advances toward her. And as punishment for this, she was tortured because that's the way things were done in 231. What did they do? Well, they cut off her breast. Wow, that's terrible. It is terrible. And she's one of the patron saints of like breast cancer, people with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. She is. And she's often depicted, her iconography often shows her holding a plate with her breast on it. One painting I've seen had her breast removed, but you can actually see the bones of her rib cage. Yeah, I've seen several like that in my Googling expedition. Find out more about St. Agatha. So... She was pretty awesome. Young woman who was revered for her piety and purity. She actually became the patron saint of Sicily. Her body was incorrupt, or at least her arms and legs were, and also her breast. So there's a breast reliquary? Yes, there is a breast reliquary. The specimen of her breast is actually, I think, the University of Pisa has one in their museum that you can go see. There's also one in the reliquary. Now, there's a great story that goes along with this. Better than what we've just covered. Which, Impossible. I know, right? So apparently, the reliquary, of course, is studded with all manner of jewel and things. You know, it's very ornate. It is a priceless artifact, even taken out of context. So it was being looted from the city where it's housed. By some Byzantine raiders. and Yes. And they tried to take the body away, but apparently they dropped one breast. And a young mother from Sicily was walking with her daughter, who was still breastfeeding, and she fell asleep in the countryside. So she falls asleep on her walk with her infant, as you do. And when she wakes up, she sees the infant with the breast of St. Agatha in its mouth not creepy at all no and it is enjoying the best breast milk ever known to mankind apparently that's what it says in in the documents that i've read the sweetest breast milk ever known to mankind okay from this disembodied breast that's centuries old that's centuries old but then a man a priest comes along and recognizes what it is of course. Yeah, and takes it from the infant, who's really not happy that he's taking the breast. Well, it has the best breast, breast milk ever. ever, I know. So, no word on how that panned out for the infant, whether or not he got superpowers or not. But the breast was returned and put back in the reliquary. And there are huge feast days, two times a year, at the beginning of February and also in August, on her the day she was martyred, as well as the day her remains were returned from Constantinople. Because they were brought back 83 years later. So now there are arms and legs and breasts and all kinds of pieces of St. Agatha. And they all have their own little reliquaries. So they take them out and parade them through the streets twice a year. Another fun fact about St. Agatha's feast days is there's a traditional marzipan pastry that's made and served specifically for her feast days. And they're white and they have little red dots in the middle and they're made to look like breasts. Of course they are. So we talked about all these incorruptible saints and these relics, but all these stories are centuries old. I mean, they aren't still doing this. But except they are. Of course. <laughs> yeah, it'd be too convenient to be like, well, that was an old practice and it just went away. Um, no. Right, in 1975, Monsignor Gianfranco Noli was the director of the Vatican Egyptian Museum, and he wanted to start a team to help preserve saints. That's and kind of against the rules, huh? Well, not really, because like we said, once you find them incorruptible... You want to keep them nice. Nice looking. All right. Yeah. And so he thought, and you know, he had this vast knowledge of Egyptian mummification, mm-hmm. and he went to gather a team together, have a super friends team, to preserve these saints' bodies and relics. Okay. And so he gathered surgeons, pathologists, radiologists, anthropologists, microbiologists, All the gist. Yeah, to try to treat some of the newly deceased holy men and women, and also to treat some of the older relics, with the oldest being from the 3rd century. And so one of the relics that they treated was of St. Teresa. And so St. Teresa died in 1582, and her story includes having visions of Jesus, and she was a Spanish saint, she took care of the poor. Interestingly, her followers are called decased, meaning shoeless, and several pieces of her were taken as relics, including her feet. 
Because she was shoeless, and that's the thing, right? right? And Cute. One the, yeah. <laughs> one of the interesting things is her foot was actually stolen in 1984. Someone smashed the glass of the reliquary, but it was returned several days later, wrapped in a communist newspaper. Wrapped in communist newspaper in 1984. Conspiracies. <laughs> Speaking to the team, they, they really thought they were doing God's work. Don Luigi Orion was an Italian priest. He is a saint. And as they were trying to preserve his body, one of the members was dressing him and putting new shoes on him. And he was known as a very humble man. And every time that they'd put new shoes on him and leave, and the next day they would come back, his new shoes would be gone and his old shoes would be back. I love that story. And one of the major people that they were tasked in preserving was... Pope John the 23rd. Uh-huh. And that's who started the whole Vatican II thing. The great reformation of the church. Besides his very liberal nature, um, he also has miracles such as curing an Italian in a stomach cancer. And after death, he was embalmed and placed in an airtight coffin. Okay. In 2000, they exhumed him and found no decomposition. And then they went on to do a year-long preservation process. He is on display in St. Peter's Basilica. Oh, well, good for him. I'm proud of him. Really, that's nice. This sounds really like a beautiful dedication to the traditions and history of the church. You can really see the ideas that go into this. The purity of the bodies of people that were pure in life. One thing I've read about um, that I think is interesting is in recent years, after this was crossed off the miracle list, if you will... When relics have been refitted for display, the little placards that explain what they are often don't say that the saints were incorruptible. They credit the faith of the parishioners who looked after the relics with keeping them in the state for display. Like we discussed, incorruptibility is kind of on the fringe of things. It's French Catholic, which is my favorite kind of Catholic, by the way. So beautiful dedication to history and tradition. But didn't they kind of all die of cancer after they'd been exposed to all the chemicals and things for so long? They did. And the article we read, which was only a few years old, only one member of the team was still alive. Well, it's, it's good to, to care about something and to care enough to give your life to that cause i guess it's noble okay so we have man-made mummies we have nature-made mummies organic with no gmos and we have god-made mummies definitely (laughs) and then we have elmer the creepy mummy that was not a dummy mummy found where he's not supposed to be it's probably the last time that anybody's like walked into a setting where there shouldn't be a mummy and found one, right? Except for two months ago. Okay. <laughs> it was actually in March 2016 where there are headlines everywhere. You may have seen them. Mummified German man found on drifting yacht. Oh, God. And he was found off the coast of Mindano. His name was Manfred Fritz Bajorat. He was a 59-year-old German sailor, and he had set off years ago with his wife on his yacht to sail through their retirement. Where's his wife? His wife died two years ago. Okay, just making sure. Of cancer, and he continued on. Okay. The last known contact with him was about a year ago when he spoke to one of his friends on Facebook. Local fishermen found the yacht adrift, and when they looked in, they thought they saw a murdered body. Oh, well, they should call the authorities. And they did. Okay, good. And they came on board and they found the preserved mummified body of Fritz sitting at the table, kind of hunched over next to the radio. And they think that he may have died of something like a heart attack and was just preserved by the environment that he was in. Like salty air and no exposure to the elements. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, he may have been mummified and months. It's amazing that anybody ever found that ship. Right, if you think of just how large the sea is. So, mummies making incredible journeys and finding their way home. That's just a story, right? Yeah. It's just a story. 